Hey guys, Jamie here. So, uh, okay. So after we recorded our episode this week, um, we got some very sad news that Michael Brooks, my colleague at the Majority Report, uh, passed away suddenly from a blood clot. It's still fucking crazy to me. I can't believe this is real. Um, since then, we've been wondering uh, how to eulogize him on the show. And I shared some thoughts on the Majority Report today, which is Tuesday. Um, you can listen there if you want to hear those thoughts. Um some of you may know, Michael and I didn't always have the easiest relationship, but uh, I definitely learned a lot from him, and I had deep affection for him at the same time that we drove each other crazy, um, like like work siblings do, right? But um, he was intensely dedicated to the cause, and I always viewed him as a comrade, so now um, I'm going to read a little passage from his book, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right, which represents some of his core political and humanistic values. And those are things that I really admired about him. And I'm just so sad that he's gone. Okay. What we need is a cosmopolitan socialism premised on real material needs that expresses itself in criticism, art, music, movement building, and anything else that drives politics. Again, following Gramsci, we need an integral approach that fuses universal desires, aspirations, and material concerns with a recognition that we do in fact live in a globalized, interconnected, and neoliberal world still defined by grotesque inequality good Michael word there, uh, ecological crisis, and resurgent right-wing authoritarianism. Our approach can't simply be to tell people they're wrong to be concerned with the cultural issues that define much of their lives, or to dismiss the importance of oppression that doesn't always take an economic form. Rather, we need to recapture the spirit that appealed to young Bengali Marxist M.M. Roy in 1920. To M.N. Roy, the Communist International's Second Congress was a revelation. For the first time, he remarked, brown and yellow men met with white men who were not overbearing imperialists, but friends and comrades. The point isn't to valorize the mixed record of the capital C communist movement. Rather, the point is to highlight that the type of comradeship and solidarity across racial and national lines that Roy wrote about is going to have to be central to any kind of viable movement to achieve a better world. Indeed, it's absolutely central to the democratic and humanistic Marxism with which I identify. So that was the passage from Michael's book. And now I invite everybody to join me in a moment of silence in remembrance of our comrade, Michael Brooks.
Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And today, we are happy to have returning champion Nate Post-Cyborg, one half of the collective known as masks off or line goes down or whatever you want to call them. Those really smart political economy guys that we bring on the show and collaborate with. Nate's going to be with us today to do, I think, a very interesting and important dive into the issue of housing uh, under COVID, the contradictions of, uh, let's say, of of having housing as a commodity have uh, never been more rife than they are now. And then after that, We'll also be covering some very important news items of the day, not limited to, but including uh, fascism comes to Portland, or I should rather say intensifies in Portland because we all know um, they're pretty fashy already of what with needing everything to be cute and covered in birds. Um, and Ted Wheeler, that jackbooted thug. Indeed, indeed. Um might touch a little bit on the cancel culture bullshit, although I feel like we're all a little bit tired of it. We can talk about how tired of talking about it we are. Mm -hmm. We can talk about how much we don't care. Right. We don't care so much that we're still talking about it. We're not mad. We're laughing. Exactly. And um, a few other things. So stay tuned, folks. All right. And here we are. We are with Nate Post cyborg, what's up? What's up, man? Um, long time no talk. I hope everything's good on your end. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your political economy insights with us, as as you are prone to do. Uh, quote unquote, yeah. You Hopefully are, insightful. You are our political economy correspondent. You know. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> Only missing uh, one half of your team, but let's get right into it. Um, what is the state right now? Because when we talked, I think four months ago on Line Goes Down, we anticipated that the global pandemic was going to have huge knock-on effects on the economy. And we also said that, of course, while the virus was a threat to all people universally, it was, the response to it and the consequences were going to be class-based. So right now, give us a kind of rundown of... What's going on, especially as it pertains to housing, which I think is where this crisis is uh, is really manifesting itself? Yeah, I I think it's safe to say it's having profound effects on the economy. Um, the emergency measures of the CARES Act seems to kind of have stabilized things, um, including the subsidy to unemployment insurance and you know the one-time check of twelve hundred dollars. I think. It's from looking at, um, you know, stats on people paying their rent. Um, people are, I think, late more frequently, but by the end of the month, they end up paying more than I actually expected. You know, I think April was like a fucking bloodbath and like 30% of people didn't pay. But then since then, it's been more stable. But that's all totally contingent on the emergency measures, which all have expiration dates. Right. And one thing that we'll talk about is the eviction moratoria that have been in place around the country are coming down one by one. So we'll talk about what that means. But um, just for starters, I mean, the U.S. is already uh, an extremely housing insecure country. Um, 
especially when considering, you know, the classic, you know, we're the wealthiest country in history kind of thing. Um, not to mention that because so much capital is parked in real estate, we have a huge housing stock right. um, that is obviously overvalued and unaffordable. So even before the pandemic, renter households um, generally had lower incomes compared to uh, you know homeowners, which that shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, they also had more consumer debt relative their, to their income, fewer assets, and very low liquid savings. Um, like, I think uh, 17% of renters um, pay more than 50% of their income in rent. And some of those people have only like $10 in liquid assets at any given time. Like the number of people with less than like $1,000 in their savings account is very, very high. Um, 40% of renters were cost burdened before the unemployment crisis, meaning they paid more than a third of their income in rent. I personally pay like fucking half my income in rent. Jesus. Um, and yeah, one in four was spending more than half their income. So, and then I should also know this is more particular, but, uh, in 2018, um, a, uh, group from the UN came and like assessed the Bay area housing crisis and, uh, called it a human rights violation Wow! and compared it to like the slums of Mumbai. And like, you know, I live here and I don't know if it really compares to like really, really, you know, some of the world's largest slums, but it's definitely a fucking human rights violation. Uh, you know, homelessness doesn't just mean lack of housing. It means very much lack of, uh, social existence. Um, you know, there's all these little laws that push them off the sidewalks. They can't like lie down on the sidewalk, um, police harassment. So it's our, it was already really tough to like maintain housing here. If you were low income. Um, so that being said, once people lost their income, it became even tougher. Um, I have some stats there. Currently, the uh, unemployment rate is like 13.3%. Um, but, you know, as we've talked about other times, the actual unemployment rate doesn't even really cover lost income. So the, the U6 rate, which um, includes people who are um, like employed part-time um, for economic reasons. Um, so basically just like lost hours is over 18%. And let's see, uh, currently 38% of workers in the bottom fifth of jobs are unemployed. So it's obviously hitting lower income jobs and that's partly because the lowest income jobs are like service work so stuff that was particularly affected by the shutdowns it's been um, a, a complete bloodbath uh, in those sectors of the yeah. economy where so many people <clears throat> have to work to survive i think i saw um recent stats that said there was a 36 percent contraction of economic activity last quarter which is just unheard of yeah. in capitalist history and yeah, these unemployment numbers don't even take into account the people who either don't di didn't qualify for unemployment, right? Uh, because they were working off the books or whatever, um, as uh -huh. well as the people who've just given up 
trying to get unemployment because we all know the system is incredibly backlogged. Yeah, eventually you graduate. <laughs> if you haven't found employment in like eight, eight weeks or something, graduate out of unemployment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then on top of that, I found the statistic that says that earnings for low-income workers decreased thirty-six percent from January. Um, so even if you have a job, you know, like for whatever reason, um, there's many reasons why your income might decrease, but they've just looted a full third of your income back. Because, you know, these companies are doing whatever the fuck they can to, to stay in business. Right. So, and yeah, go in ahead. terms of, like, long-term scarring, a third of the lost jobs are from companies that have folded, not just downsized. So, like, arguably, if a company downsizes during a downswing, it could rehire the same proportion of people once uh, the economy reopens. But a third of them have just closed. They're never coming back. Um, and then the estimate is that 42% of COVID-induced layoffs, so not even companies that have folded, but companies that have just shrunk or downsized, that 42% of those are never coming back as well. So permanent downsizing. So unemployment is going to become very much a fact of life for like a very large amount of people. Again, most of whom rent. So... Um, that being said, uh, the country already was super housing insecure, and that necessitated, I would say, like pretty quick action to get um, some like law in place to protect people from getting evicted and losing their housing, right? So the so-called eviction moratorium. Um, and do we do we want to go into that right now? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and let's talk about because uh, you mentioned the CARES Act and how that kind of put a temporary stop on the financial stress of many Americans. But there's this moratoria, moratoria, I guess you would say, uh, are running yeah. out very very soon. So it seems like the other shoe is going to drop. So what's going? What's yeah, going on and with most that? places have not canceled rent. I feel like there's only one or no. two. Uh, municipalities in the country that have managed to do that. So what that means is, you know, even though housing courts are closed for three months, you still pile up more and more money that you owe to your landlord that a lot of people have no way of paying, and they're just going to be evicted when the housing courts open again. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I organized with a group called Tenant and Neighborhood Councils, or TANK, um, Hell yeah, based. We're tankies. Uh, so, <laughs> the good you know, kind. our line on this, our like official um, demands are cancellation because the only way to guarantee that people stay housed um, is obviously a rent cancellation. But that just isn't what's happening. It's just this moratorium, which are, they're all temporary. And I was trying to like figure out a way because there's the thing is, there's no federal moratorium. Um, the CARES Act does ban evictions um, for housing that's financed through Fannie Mae. Um, so it gets federal subs subsidization. And so because of that, you know, they have authority. And so there is an eviction moratorium for that housing uh, through July 25th, so like next week. And to be clear, um, um, Fannie Mae is a, like, a public-private corporation 
that's mostly right, yeah. involved in getting first-time homeowners uh, mortgage uh, access, right? Yeah, and a lot of whom are landlords. Um, so the uh, – or I might be mixing up with the other one, Freddie Mac. I don't remember. But one of the two private public corporations um, – you know, banned evictions through the CARES Act. Um, but that, that's the minority of housing. Um, but, you know, uh, states, counties, and municipalities have also passed their own versions. Um, and it's basically just a huge patchwork. And you can imagine they're stronger in places like Massachusetts, which has, like, you know, Democratic leadership or whatever. Not that the Democrats are better, but they can be better on things like this. Um, and worse in places like Alabama. So it's ex- the, the same inconsistency that any other kind of social welfare has. Um, and they often like contradict each other. Like I think in the Bay Area in Alameda County has like a different end date than Oakland does. And it's like literally legally unclear w- which date is more pertinent. Um, so no one actually knows, like literally the judges don't know yet because oh. cases haven't started. Um, and so they've also been pushed through uh, mostly by court order, sometimes by executive order from the governor, and then occasionally by legislation. And they're all structured all these different ways. And I was trying to figure out a way to like qualitatively characterize all of it because it's obviously just too much to go through it all. And I found a pretty good database compiled by um, the Autonomous Tenant Union Network, uh, or ATUNE, which um, my group, Tank, is a part of. And I'll talk about that a little more later. But judging from that data set, it looks like um, in 27 states, evictions can currently resume, like today. And then I counted also states where they are set currently to resume by September, so in the next two months. And that's an additional 12 states. And so that's, what is that, 39 states so the remaining 11 states, those are all um, don't have an expiration date. They're pegged to the state of emergency. Right. And it's a the phased, state of emergency, yeah. say again? Yeah, it's a phase. They're phasing it in along with yeah. eating at restaurants or going to the theater. or Exactly. And, like, and we know that the states of emergency, we're having this kind of second surge, first surge type thing. So when it is pegged to the state of emergency, that could reasonably be extended or be expected to be extended. But again, in 20, in the majority of states, um, including, uh, you know, Texas and, um, Florida is another one that is going to end soon. So you know, very like, pop, popular. like 70 states. million people right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're already going back to evictions and I found another, um, source called the eviction lab that kind of compiles data about eviction and they have this little scorecard where they assess the different moratoria based off of like a number of um, protections whether it includes protections related to the initiation of eviction um, or the court process itself etc etc and so there's like 15 little check boxes and the more checks you get the more protective it is and I counted, you know, and it rates it on a star system. Um, and so I decided to count three stars or below because I figured 
If it's only three stars, it's only protecting you halfway. That's like not very good. 42 states got three stars or below. Wow. And then I decided to count below one star, and that's 33 of them. So the majority have just the barest glimmer of protection in the first place. Um, so in a real sense, um, these working class renters that you're talking about and, and homeowners, too, who have already been stressed, have uh, very little relief coming to them. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we got to go back to normal, though, right? All the things that uh, make life right. worth living, eating, whether that's eating in restaurants, um, going to the theater, or if you're a landlord, um, evicting your tenants. Yeah. Um, and so, so there's a few things. We, we've seen a rise in illegal evictions, which you might expect. Like, eviction for at least a brief period became illegal across the country. That doesn't mean they stopped. Um, but they're, they're legal again. And there's a few interesting bottlenecks, though. It's not like... So, you know, we've been talking about this eviction wave, and it's, it's going to be a big wave. Um, there's going to be like a lot of cases where it actually goes through successfully and is, and is essentially reinstated as a practice. Um, but I, I think there's some interesting opportunities for resisting eviction that are possible. Um, yeah, please, which I'll talk that's, about. that's the essential, uh, information we'll get to towards the end. Yeah. Uh, um, I also want to talk about a couple of the Definitely insufficient mitigating policies that have been passed. Yeah, sure. Like giving people rent relief. I know they have a program in New York where if you, it's pretty hard to qualify. Like you have to, I was reading through, I don't qualify. Um, you have to have been rent burdened before COVID. And then um, if your rent burden increased due to income that you can show that you lost due to COVID, um, the city will pay that money, the difference directly to your landlord. That's one thing that they're doing. Also, Sounds complicated. It's incredibly, it feels like it was written like specifically for one person who complained about it. <laughs> it's and like, like, that, like that, that Kamala Harris thing. Like yeah. if you're, we'll get rid of your Pell Grants if you open right. a business yeah. in a minority in a blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they're like, all right, maybe we'll, we'll throw you a bone here. And that's like in a very liberal city, right? Communist New York or whatever. Also, <laughs> laws, yeah, right. laws saying, um, I don't, this may actually have passed in New York saying that you cannot be thrown out on the streets. Um, your landlord can only get a money judgment against you in civil court. Like, what do you make of these measures? Um, so Alameda County has uh, a measure where it says that you can't ever be evicted for missed rent. So previously it was, you're not going to be evicted right now if you don't pay rent. You can be late on your rent. And then they updated it um, so that your landlord can't even retroactively pursue eviction if you missed rent during the state of emergency, which is one of the stronger protections, I think, around the country, um, which is good. However, as we just we said previously, like it's it's not cancellation. And so it actually it, it corollary to that. It has a lot of ways that landlords can go about pursuing the back rent. And another good thing that it does, though, is it delays it 12 months. And this is one of the bottlenecks I was referencing. Like, it could just be so prohibitively expensive for most landlords to even pursue the rent that they end up settling. 
and we can talk about that in a second in terms of strategy. But, but what it does mean, though, is that, like, instead of rent, it just becomes debt. And as debt, it can affect your credit score. It can go to collections. Um, they can fucking garnish your wages. Like, one way or another, a lot of these landlords, it could take half a decade, but I do think a lot of the missed rent right now, short of something being done about it to resist this and force more significant cancellations through, as long as they're not canceling it, these landlords are going to get their rent from these people one way or another. I, I know a tenant I was working with who unfortunately was forced out of their housing, um, and the landlord wanted nine grand from her, from them, uh, like, ASAP, which is illegal. Or it's, it's not illegal, but they can't compel them, thankfully. So I don't actually know, like, how that's turned out, but... You hear these stories, people are getting slapped with these massive checks, you know, or uh, bills, rather. So, as long as rent is not canceled, um, we're still expected to pay it. So, so barring all that, just in the next five minutes or so, give us the what is to be done. Because, you know, as we've, as we've talked about, there doesn't seem to be much help coming. Certainly, when these moratoria are over... Uh, there will be this attempted wave of, it, of eviction. So as a tenant organizer, what what do you think in the realm of possibility now, strategically? Yeah, and maybe uh, you could also give some tips, say, if one were trying to organize their building and trying to get people on board who maybe they got all of their unemployment and they feel like they're fine and they should have more empathy for their fellow uh, tenants, but they don't. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you, if you want to organize, um, your building or they might not live in your building, but the, they might rent from the same landlord, you know, you might run into a huge variety of, uh, opinions and class backgrounds and whatever that make it kind of hard to get unity on something. And I mean, this is going to take longer than five minutes, but there's, you know, you could, Framing, I think the probably the best framing is just like there's so much uncertainty right now that this is like insurance for us. Like the landlord is not going to give they give you a break when it comes down to it. You might be fine now, but we don't really know where the economy is going. That seems to work. The other thing is you don't need 100% of people on board. If someone's just being a fucking stickler, just isolate them, like ice them out. Like they don't just don't let them infect others. Um, but that being said, I mean I think the the sure, the surest way to fight back is forming a tenant council against your landlord. And I mentioned this uh, autonomous tenant union network, which um, I'm kind of affiliated with. And it has like, there's like 30 cities in North America that have autonomous tenant unions. And by autonomous, um, we mean that it's, it's, it's not um, donor based. It's not connected to a nonprofit. They're not 501c3s. Um, they're uh, dues-based organizations that are democratically run by tenants. And to me, that's like the best model to actually like create a real militant tenant movement. And it's being created since 2015. It's kind of grown a little bit. But that being said, it's minuscule compared to the scale of the disaster that's looming. So I think you don't need a tenant union in your city to form a tenant council. All you need is to have contact with your fellow tenants and a little bit of a plan. And there's lots of organizing guidelines on 
like the LA Tenant Unit website, on the Tank website, just Google it. Um, I will say it's extremely challenging. I'm having a very difficult time organizing right now, um, not least because of the pandemic, but it is possible and there has been a lot of traction. And the reason this is the best way to go about it is because you can take action against your landlord to compel them to negotiate with you. And depending on where you are, so again, Alameda County, we have this pretty big window before landlords can really use the courts to compel people to pay back their rent. Um, and in that time, you know, there's a lot of, like, the bottlenecks in the courts might prove to be very costly for landlords to actually go through. And if they have a, you know, a big enough landlord who is missing out on a big enough chunk of rent, it might be worth it to them. But depending on how, like, annoying um, your tenant council is and how, um, how much action you take and uh, how much court support there is, you can make it so that they prefer to settle and negotiate with you. And so the best way to ensure this is to like basically scare your landlord into giving up on pursuing the back rent and giving up on evicting you. Slip, uh, print out some uh, pictures of Mao Zedong and uh, slip them yeah. under your landlord's door at night. That's right. I've also heard of people showing up and like occupying places and having demos in front of buildings to prevent evictions. Like this recently happened on Dean Street in Brooklyn. Um, I also heard of a story where a landlord just, uh, uh, really a slumlord, just uh, decided to harass a tenant by placing someone in their apartment whose job it was basically to like be a dick and intimidate them. And a bunch of people showed up and had a little occupation there. It was in the uh -huh. news. I can, I can send you the news item. It's crazy. It's yeah, like, this is insane. your new roommate now. First, she tried going to the cops, and they just laughed at her, obviously. And then she went to some tenant organizations, and they're like, this is egregious. Yeah, I'll send you the story. It's fucking crazy. And then she joined a Maoist cadre, and she's in the swamps uh -huh. of Florida building the protracted people's war against landlords. But, you know, I think we can expect the landlords are like kind of, you know, the bottom of the barrel and who knows what kind of shit they'll pull. Like they'll pull fucking everything. Um, so we should fight dirty, too, basically is what I think. Oh, yeah. That's and right. And P.S., the cops aren't going to help you, just so you they're know. They're not. Oh, but they're my landlord is breaking the I mean, law. Um, the cops side with landlords all the time. So. I hope this dude gets like fucked though. I mean, that's so many. It's like larceny. <laughs> no, it's forgery. It's yeah. Skullduggery. Um, I think it's felony skullduggery. Right. So other areas of eviction defense. Um, I think one that'll be really important is so like I mentioned, there's this like kind of like legal patchwork, and there's just an immense amount of gray area and how all this gets resolved. And most of the ways that these moratoria are structured. It's going to get, like, it allows the eviction filings. Like, almost nowhere it, was it banned to even file. So there's, like, a backlog now. Um, and what that means is it's going to go through the courts, and they're going to have to figure out some kind of process. So obviously, it's a very special, like, situation. Um, and I think that it could be that a court, the courts could be, like, vaguely sympathetic. Probably they'll just kind of mechanize eviction. Um, like we saw, there's, like, that... I think Pittsburgh, like they rented out some like wrestling rink and just have like this weird mass eviction court. Oh, um, and so like, we'll probably just I feel create, like, the, like the, the working class should probably have their own mass something or other against landlords right. at yeah. some point. 
in a video game. <laughs> Parody. Sorry. So there's going to be probably a lot of like just rubber stamping of evictions um, just to kind of lessen the load. But I think it's going to be a true bottleneck. Like I think it'll take probably years to resolve. And the, the cases themselves will define the law, right? Because there's so much gray area that's going to take like case law precedent. And so I think actually showing up in court and doing court support where you effectively fill out a courtroom, you're wearing all the regalia, you're having the, the giant um, like Mao banner, <laughs> and you're showing that that tenant who normally is just like a worm in the eye of the judge that you can squash at will, um, you know, has backing and um, bodies and spaces, et cetera. Well, actually, I don't know about bodies and spaces because we might all catch coronavirus. Right. Whatever form it takes, though. Um, what about blocking that, the courthouse so it can't open? I think they did that in Richmond. And it, yeah, it worked for yeah. one day. I'm not sure if they've done it since. What about the communists in the 1930s uh, in New York City and right. Harlem who would, when the people got kicked out, just break back into the apartment and rehouse them? Yeah, so I was going to get to something like that. Or, or, But also in the Depression when they, um, they would like, auction off farmland and then they would show up with pitchforks and like chase the auctioneer away. Um, so I think blockading or filling the courts could alter the case law itself because it could change how the judges, like, first of all, the speed at which they even process these things, but then also pressure different outcomes. Um, and then straight-up eviction blockades, we are stopping the enforcement of it once it's been decided. These never seem to work or, like, stick at least. Um, like, I was a, you know, parody in a video game. I was playing a part of one once, um, and... As a big crowd, I wasn't. I didn't have any kind of special role or anything. But then the you know people went home to go to sleep, and then they just came at four in the morning and evicted everyone. And like the militarized police state can afford to wait people out. So the eviction blockade, at least in the um, LA Tenant Union like uh, guide that I was reading about this, they say that it's more about politicizing eviction and showing that it's a violent process. But I do think if we like have very frequent eviction blockades, even if they succeed in the instance, but it just becomes this friction that happens every time, then I think systemically will exhaust the ability to enforce it, uh, or at least reduce the efficiency. And I think that that combined with like the court thing um, can, can have an effect. Um, but then to like what you said, moving people back in, I mean, ultimately the ultimate goal of the tenant movement is to expropriate housing and decommodify it. And I don't, I don't have less to say about that because um, that's also tricky, but I have a feeling like, you know, I was looking, there's estimates of up to 23 million people are vulnerable to eviction coming up in the next few months by, by September. And if they hypothetically went through with all that, that would be a like fucking 46 hundred percent increase in the homeless population wow. like it would be an unmitigated disaster that would lead to just it, i think some kind of point in overturn in terms of like political crisis and so i don't think we're arguably already at the with homelessness in this country yeah yeah it's already like pretty much at the max um and so i think that like all these people get evicted Moving them back in might become more viable if, generally speaking, the, the general populace 
sees the eviction as illegitimate and it's like that's that person's house so yeah move them in yeah. so i think a lot of things could be shifting i think it also ties in with defunding the police right because if you Absolutely. shrink the budget for a police department the hope is that they will be uh doing less of that kind of work where they enforce evictions um but i mean it's it's a guess on my part i i also had like one more question if I may, before we go, uh, zooming out a little bit, because we know that um, the quote-unquote economy, uh, how the economy is doing as measured by, you know, mainstream economists, is not always necessarily tied to the well-being of the average working-class person or (laughs) even the poor. So um, what impact, if any will it have on the economy to have a massive wave of foreclosures and evictions? Because I can see some scenarios, right, where it actually benefits capital because these speculators can come in and buy up all these buildings on the cheap and rent them out for even more money, although it may hit a point at which they can't find people to rent them or buy them anymore. So, like, what impact do you think this might have on the economy writ large? It's so hard to predict. I think that, yeah, I think that it will central, like, obviously, just because there's a a depression doesn't mean every individual capitalist is hurting. I think people will just buy out properties. The campaign I'm most involved with right now is with this um, tenants who rent from this company called SMC. And SMC, those motherfuckers bought all of their properties about... 350 houses in Oakland in mostly black and Latino neighborhoods in 2008. You know, they, they were completely vultures and like they contributed gentrification that way. I think all that shit will continue and it'll definitely like benefit big capitalists. I think a lot of small landlords will get fucked over, which fuck them, whatever. Well, they'll um, not fall into the rest of the working class like us. Exactly. Um, and, but I do think that the the rental market might seize up a bit. I mean, I just can't imagine justifying like the insanely high rents that exist in almost every city um, when there's no income, <laughs> when there's a depression. Like, so I think that there there's going to be contradictory effects, and it's kind of hard to know like where it'll balance out. It also seems like the effects on the economy writ large will be a determining factor as to whether or not the government does anything about it. Totally. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of why I think I've been thinking about this in terms of Dune, um, where... Nerd alert. Let let the spice uh, flow. The spice is rent in this analogy, maybe. No, in this analogy, spice melange is historical materialism because <laughs> Paul Atreides, you know, they, he depicts it where he's like, he can kind of see the shape of history a little bit and then that helps him like act. But then like as it gets closer to the climax, um, which is like it gets more and more unpredictable and he can't see the shape anymore. And like that's just every time I try to think about 23 million people being vulnerable to eviction all at once, even with all the little delays in place. It just becomes like this blank void where I'm like, I don't know what comes after that. Like, it just strikes me as a, some kind of deadlock that where things are going to give in some direction, but I don't really know what direction. Because as it stands, you know, tenant unions are popping up, but they're not popping up fast enough. 
organizing takes a lot of time and I don't know if we have time, but then again, if people start getting kicked out of their homes, organizing can, you know, not even organizing, just spontaneous activity could like really pick up, yeah. especially as it, it converges with the, the stuff that's still ongoing against police. You know, it's just fucking acceleration every, every which way. We are definitely in the thick of it. Um, I think that one takeaway from your um, presentation here is that things are bad, but we still have some <laughs> leverage, right? We still have leverage yeah. because 23 homeless people is a problem for those 23 people. 23 million is a problem for them and the capitalist class. So, Nate, yeah. thanks for being with us, and uh, we'll do A Line Goes Down real soon. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. All right, you guys ready to do some news now? Let's do news now. Boop, 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 boop. So, let's see. Um, I guess I should start by saying I'm fresh off my first panel ever. That's news in my world. Um, you were on a Zoom panel. I was on a Zoom panel about socialist organizing in the capitalist state with Eric Blanc, a member of the Bread and Roses Caucus. Um, XISO, is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. R.I.P. If you want to have a bit of a laugh, um, I'll say with Eric, not at Eric, because I'm trying to be comradely here. You can look up the uh, old Daily Show clip that he's in. Uh, um, yes. But anyway, um, it was my first panel ever, and I think it went all right. I feel like I kind of shit the bed halfway through, but other people said it was good. Um, but I got a lot of comments from people where they're like, you don't need to apologize, Jamie. Because uh, there were a few times when I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, blah, blah, blah. And it made me realize, um, you know, I do that thing where women apologize who aren't used to having their voices listened to, which might seem like a silly thing to say coming from someone who talks on a podcast. But um, I am often somewhat uh, interrupted when I'm on the Majority Report and even here on the Antifada. By, by Brandon Finn, right? Yes, yes, he's a fucking dick. And um, even here on the Antifada, I'm often looking to my co-host to like kind of pick up where I left off, flesh out my ideas, or just like nod along, like what I'm saying isn't crazy. So um, I just want to say that I'm sorry for apologizing so much, and uh, it won't happen again. No apologies. That's mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, uh what else? What else is going on in the news? There's some stuff going down in Portland. There's a is, lot uh, of somewhat stuff. concerning. Oy, oy, oy. I would say. Um, in the news over the last several days, there has been a lot of information coming out of Portland. Some of our some of our best people are down on the ground there, like Robert Evans and some really good. Um, you know, Antifa super soldiers. Antifa super soldiers out there documenting things. And about day 49 or 50 of the protest, because the heroes out there in Portland, Oregon, have been going at it uh, ever since George Floyd was murdered, and then have continued, of course, as the police have continued to, of course, escalate things. And it's gotten to the point now where there are um, feds, federal agents, who are in camouflage, who are apparently in unmarked vans, just going through the streets of Portland and snatching people up 
um, outside of, I guess, their uh, their jurisdiction. Snatching our people up. Snatching our people up. So there's so there's a lot of talk right now about what this means. Is this fascism? I guess is the question. Is right? this fascism? Anyone got an opinion? <laughs> no, I just, I like that. Is this fascism? I mean, yeah, the good. Pacific Northwest is so crazy, right? Because the image we have of like Portland is like, oh, put a bird on it. Everyone's a NPR liberal and right. they all do subcultural shit. But it's actually crawling with Nazis, right? Like if Fred and Carrie wanted to do a more honest satire of the area, Perhaps um, the people putting birds on things might be uh, white nationalists putting uh, eagles and iron crosses on their militia <laughs> uniforms. Right. Uh, it's it's an interesting. Uh, does anybody here know? Do either of you know how Portland became such a um, a radical city? Like why why is it Portland and I guess like that whole region has this history going back like twenty twenty five years? Well, its history is pretty far. And as we all know, there needs to be a fa to have an anti-fa. But its history is also anti-fa. Like, there was a massive, heroic um, general strike in Seattle in 1818. So, like, it's, it's got a very volatile history, I guess I'm asking. Yeah, I'm I saying. think Oregon was founded, like, explicitly to be, like, a white state. Yeah, and, but... But I guess what I'm pointing to is this duality because it was specifically there are like racial covenants written into the state constitutions. But it's also been this site of uh, working class labor unrest for that entire time, too. So it well, seems like we Portland... all know that uh, labor is racist. So all right. no That's conflict true. there. No conflict there. Just kidding. So is is what uh, what Trump's feds doing? Is that fascism? Andy, is that fascism? Tell us. You're a fash watcher. Uh, well, I guess the, the concern is that if people dressed like that can just abduct somebody into a van, then the paramilitaries who dress like that and often work with the approval of the police or if not alongside of them can do yeah, the same thing too. It seems like there's too. a bit of overlap there. Uh, but I don't think you can really call it, yeah, it's authoritarian. It's uh, you know very troubling. Uh, but I, I don't think it's so outside even the norms of what has been going on in our liberal democracy recently. So I don't see it as fascism, especially because you see a lot of uh, state politicians and even like the federal level Democrats, Pelosi and Schumer, denouncing it and pushing back against it. And you see Homeland Security, who's the, the agency kind of who has been tasked with becoming the federal police force against uh, the uprising, essentially, changing their tactics based on what kind of pushback they're getting, especially after D.C. Um, so a good place to look for those internal documents is Ken Klippenstein, Clip Einstein, as Elon Musk called him. <laughs> He's been getting some documents and some sources from DHS kind of explaining their logic in doing this. And there is a theatrical aspect to it. They are trying to intimidate they are experimenting um, on how to control unrest more generally. You know, they were using a drone in Minneapolis, and there was pushback on them using the drone, and their response was, we'll continue using the drone if, if we need to. Even these arrests seem kind of, um, you know, it's not, people are talking about them being disappeared, and I suppose it's true that they were disappeared for a moment, but usually they just get taken to the justice center interrogated and released within an hour, uh, if that. 
Um, so this, these aren't exactly disappearances, and they're not exactly arrests. They're detaining people. It seems unclear exactly which people they choose to detain. They're detain. They're doing this to journalists. They're doing this to people who are dressed a certain way. Maybe they tracked people, um, you know, on the front line uh, to detain. Um, but generally speaking, this has been going on for a little while now, and now it's getting some media attention, which is good. Uh, but the media attention is one. It it uh, gets a bit hyperbolic when you say these mysterious forces. Maybe they're fascists. Maybe they're Eric Prince. Well, we know who they are. Actually, they're yeah. it's CPB. It, it's like a fusion of yeah. organized by DHS, and these are particularly CPB officers. And then they ask, like, well, why are they doing it? What is their game here? Now they're finally starting to report on it. Thanks thanks to what uh, Robert Evans has been pushing uh, in his New York Times interview and, uh, and on, uh, on Twitter and other local journalists have been like begging coverage of this. People in Portland, you know, not a lot of people, the protests are relatively small, but they've been fighting to basically take over this justice center. <laughs> they um, they and- <laughs> burnt the fucking uh, patrolman's benevolent association, the cop union, union the hall. Last night. They, they, they got they, they, into yeah, the, they, I don't yeah. know if they burnt. It looks like they threw a firework or a flare in there. I saw a video inside the place with a fire burning. It looked like a flare to me. I mean, it, it could be on fire, but the Ir- point irrespective, they were trying to burn it. Down. Yeah. And, and like the 4th of July, uh, Robert, Evans was talking about how kids just had like a thousand dollars of fireworks and they just trained it all on the, the federal, uh, building. And, yeah. and there were just like hours of them shooting fireworks at it. But there have been these street battles. And if you're posing that much of a threat to federal property, feds are going to come and defend yep. their property. It's yep. not new. It's their and job. In fact, in uh, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, there was like a black block in Seattle. And uh, some windows of the court building were smashed. And then for like the next two years, the government spent a lot of resources trying to round up the people who smashed those windows with grand juries and, um, you know, trying to get people to turn on each other just over a couple windows. So don't forget all of, the violent graffiti, right? Because that was their justification this time around. Yeah. Chad Wolf, Chad Wolf look said, at the report and it's all graffiti, right? Violent anarchists and their graffiti. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess I would just say that, uh, the, the reason why you're seeing this repress, like the repression needs to be denounced. And we should support the people who are arrested and we should, uh, you know, join with the people in Portland who are saying, uh, get the feds, get the fuck out of Portland. Uh, But also, like, this is happening because this whole movement, that these protests have taken a step further than than protests have in the past by going on the offensive. And when you go on the offensive, the state is going to go on the defensive and the offensive as well. So it's to be expected. It's not something that's like outside of the normal balance of power. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a quantitative difference, but not qualitative, as we've seen from the use of state violence going way back in the United States. When the liberal, uh, when Nancy Pelosi denounces this, they're denouncing it on the terms of um, uh, jurisdiction, right? So it's, it's simply that the federal government doesn't have the jurisdiction to go in and do these actions using CPB in Portland. They're not denouncing state violence for itself, they're not saying that the state shouldn't be repressing because they believe that the state should be repressing these violent anarchists just as much as the Republicans do. But it's very much theatrical when they denounce it 
because, um, you know, they're trying to say that Donald Trump has his own police force now. It's like, no, the president runs the executive branch and he has always they always have any president has jackbooted thugs that he can put out on the street at any given time. Yeah. Uh, we also have to remember that the DHS and ICE already do this and far worse things, actually, to immigrants and right. we should not take the focus off of that. Not to say that this isn't bad, but it is much, much worse what's already been it's, happening it's to simply, immigrants. It's simply that every for, day. for almost two months, because of the heroic Portland protesters, their relentlessness, you know, and, and as Andy said, going on the offense, it's taken the mask off the state only to the extent that what's happening to often white protesters now is has been happening, but is now visible. You know, the, the same things that have been happening to brown people, to immigrants and black people all over this country. It's just a mask off moment. Yeah. Well, the mayor of Portland is not going to do it himself, though. He's too uh, quaint and adorable. Um, I guess my brain has been broken by culture, but I just picture Kyle McLaughlin <laughs> like fumbling around his office, maybe taking a nap. And uh, like I said on Twitter the other night, I feel like Kyle McLaughlin will get to the bottom of this. And we need him both as the mayor of Portland, as well as um, Agent Dale Cooper, the only good mm, cop besides Roller right. and Scully. Because he's course. brain damaged in the newest season, right? Well, I hope that we don't get the brain damaged version, right? Because there are multiple Agent Coopers. I also hope we don't get the Bob version because he's definitely on the side yeah. of the fascists and just the chaos and murderer in he's general. He's worse than the fascists But somehow. maybe if we can get like the good version, the good Cooper, Sure. He'll uh, he'll fall asleep. He'll wake up in the Black Lodge somehow, and he will find the people being detained there. The Black Lodge is communism, maybe. Well, before we hazard, no, to... the Black Lodge is where they're keeping everybody. That's okay. the black site at the Black Lodge. Okay. Before... Try and keep up. But before we end up in uh, too many more Kyle McLaughlin and Portlandia references, let's go on to talk about the thing that. Probably shouldn't be talked about, but we're going to do it. Uh. Cancel culture. We are in a continued meltdown. The, the newest phase of um, the crisis in the public sphere that uh, some people in media, many people on social media, want to make the biggest issue at stake right now in the United States. Yeah, well. At the same time as... Tens of millions of people are potentially being evicted and you have a global fucking pandemic that's killed 140,000 Americans. We're talking for days straight about Barry Weiss resigning <sighs> from the New York Times because I guess having the most powerful elite media position in the world is insufficient for that fucking slime ball. Well, people were mean to her. Yeah, you know, right. you can't just be... Uh... That's uh, that's that's a crisis too, you know. We're in the triple crisis. I'm not making this a quadruple crisis for Barry Weiss. So okay. <laughs> not going to do it. Well, I find it incredibly ironic because um, we already found out when um, one of the guys who wrote that letter was on uh, Katie Helper and uh, Matt Taibbi's show, Useful oh, Idiots. Brett Weinstein. Um, I don't. His name's not important. No, that's it fine. wasn't Brett Weinstein. It okay. was like a more of. A friendlier, libier one, but uh, Noam Chomsky. We we found out right. Uh, they asked someone asked him why Glenn Greenwald wasn't on this letter because he's somebody who's been very vocal about this stuff, and he admitted that they had talked about it, but someone uh, someone vetoed it, and I'm willing to bet based on the stuff that Greenwald has previously written about Barry Weiss mm. that. Uh, 
Barry Weiss actually canceled Glenn Greenwald from signing the letter about cancel culture. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? I mean, also, she's like she said it in her blog post. She's mad that the New York Times did not deplatform her critics. Right. So it's very naked, at least for her, it's very nakedly and, and, about you not being canceled and your critics, yes, be canceled. And, and we've been off the Barry Weiss beat, thankfully, for like a year now. But let's remind everybody that Barry Weiss's entry into the public sphere was as a Columbia University student literally getting Palestinian professors canceled because she didn't like the idea that they could go around talking about Palestinians or human beings and have rights. That's right. Columbia unbecoming. We spoke about it on a very early episode of this show. But like, if we can disaggregate, right? Because there are people like... Well, uh, well I think our first thesis then uh, as as we've gone to this point, is that cancel culture means something very particular to elite media figures, yeah. right? But maybe doesn't mean the same thing to other people. They're trying to claim it's a universal principle, a universal problem, and that freedom of speech is a universal principle. But it seems maybe a little more complicated. So why don't well, you break it down for well, us? Well, let's disaggregate yeah. from the fact that some of the people who signed this letter are clearly hypocrites, right? right, right. Let's deal with the stuff they're saying on its face. And I think as a concept, uh, cancel culture is one of those things like corruption or democracy Ooh. that is so vague as to be basically meaningless, right? There's always a context for who's saying it, what they're using it for, why it matters. Like um, they had a good take on citations needed, which I think was really the best take on this, where they're like, oh, you know, someone asks you, do you support democracy in Venezuela? And you're like, yeah, democracy's good. And then it turns out those people asking you are the ones trying to do a coup right. against the democratically elected uh, quasi-socialist leader or something like corruption, right? We all think corruption's bad, but we also know it can be weaponized against people like Lula da Silva. It can be used as a weapon. Uh, so we can't strip it of context, and right? Corruption allowed uh, generations of New York City building trades people to uh, live a good middle-class life when the unions were controlled right? by the mafia. So sometimes corruption is good if no, it's on the side good. of the people, right? right? Just like canceling. Um, but also, like, they're talking about several different phenomenons, phenomena that we really need to be able to disaggregate Memorandums. from one another. Memoranda. And deal with them as separate issues, right? Like the idea that someone could, I don't know, tweet something transphobic, people get mad, they get fired from their job. The problem isn't that people got mad at them for being transphobic, right? The problem is that workers have no protections. Right. So maybe we should deal with that. At will employment seems to be the central issue and not some abstraction. Yeah, and that is not something that can be lumped together with, say, uh, J.K. Rowling saying some real transphobic and harmful shit and having everyone get mad at her, which is a thing that she considers to be cancellation a ratio being ratioed is not taking away your freedom i'm sorry mm -mm. um we also need to be able to draw various lines in the sand right because not all conflict is abuse um there are some opinions that are really harmful that maybe uh, like for example jk rowling saying trans women are men that is an opinion but it's a harmful opinion and it's one that 
doesn't need to be heard on elite platforms, right? Elite platforms make decisions every day. Like they don't have any communists writing for the New York Times opinion section. Uh, does that mean that we're being canceled? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't really care about that. Right. Um, and, and let's not pretend that we've ever had free speech under capitalism to begin with, or that, you know, the media, the public sphere has not always been intensely ideological as well as uh, contested territory. Right. And these these slippery slope arguments are also stupid because there's no ombudsman out there making sure that the left and the right are treated the same. Right. right? Like, oh, if, if you let them do it to the right, then they're going to do it to us like they're already going to do it to us. Yeah. Fuck them. Uh, a, a, a man, a beard, a, a bearded man named Karl Marx once said in On the Jewish Question, when equal right meets meets equal right force decides because um bourgeois society uh you know since the enlightenment and through the bourgeois revolutions in the united states and in france and all over right have thrown up these abstract universal principles one of them being freedom of speech and we can appreciate these in the abstract of course i don't think any of us are going to deny that you know, freedom of speech writ, writ large is, is a, an important and powerful thing, especially for communists, right? But the terms of that have always been contested from the very, very beginning, right? So if I have free speech in the workplace and the boss has free speech in the workplace, where does the line get drawn? And that's ultimately a question of history, right? That's about the balance of class forces at a particular time in a society. So if, here's, here's a perfect example. When the National uh, Industrial Relations Act was passed in 1933, you should read Section 7A because it is like pretty fucking based as a document. It says something to the extent of um, the government and, and private capital shall not have the right to interfere in the self-organization of the working class, including for unions, mutual aid, and other activities. Part of what that meant was that uh, workers were essentially free to have uh, whatever free speech they wanted. When things got codified into the, um, into the Wagner Act of 1935, it specifically said in the Wagner Act that enshrined union rights uh, uh, that we live with today uh, into government, it specifically said that because bosses and workers on the shop floor have vastly different amounts of power, Right, but basically the bosses can hire and fire, the worker can only get fired. Because of this balance of class forces on the workplace, the, there are no freedom of speech rights for the capitalist on his private property, in his factory, right? Um, because if the goal is to have unionization and self-organization of the workers, the free speech right of the capitalist must be taken away. And, of course, that was only won in 1933 to 1935 through massive, massive struggle on the part of the working class. General strikes, uh, unionization drives, including millions and millions of people, lockouts, secondary boycotts, all of these things. So the working class won this right in 1935. And then for a 12-year period, up until Taft-Hartley, it was literally about um, eliminating the free speech rights of the capitalist and uh, you know, 
increasing the, the, the free speech of the workers until Taft-Hartley when the balance of class forces shifted and workers lost the right to suppress the ruling class's speech mm. on the shop floor. So what that shows, again, for our purposes, right, for the purposes of liberation, socialism, communism, anarchism, um, free speech is always, always, always situational and historical. And while in the abstract we might appreciate freedom of speech, it always comes attached to real material powers that exist in the world. That's right. And, you know, if we ever were to win and say, get a socialist government, um, should the class enemies be allowed to keep on running around in the world telling a bunch of lies and trying to get our new leadership overthrown? No, I don't really think so. It has traditionally been... uh, axiomatic that the goal one goal of the working class is to ruthlessly suppress the ruling class and of course including in issues of speech so you can disagree with that or you could say that there might be some limits to that but yeah we can't if we're to create a society without a ruling class it's very hard to imagine you can let those ruling class run wild in a, in a world where they already have almost all the power. That's right. That said, you know, there should always be a chance to make amends or be held accountable or, um, say, relearn or re-educate, perhaps, the, uh, the people who are causing you harm. And that's just as true in a socialist state as it is, well, it'll be more true in a socialist state, right? But I think a lot of the reason bring it back to now that people resort to this kind of online mob behavior is because there is no avenue for accountability. There's no legit avenue. So that's what they are forced to do. I think if we have more legitimate avenues of accountability for harm that people have caused, either intentionally or unintentionally, a lot of this shit will go away. If you actually do have a situation where the public, for example, controlled the media, controlled the airways, controlled TV, controlled social networking. I mean, that's how it used to be. It used to be TV belonged to the public, and then it just got stolen from us over the course of like a few decades to where now there's just like one public access channel. But if, if all TV was public access, I, I don't know if I would have a problem if there was like one Nazi show on the airway just some wing it like would, they it, would be seen as a wing nut crank sort of like yeah like that but that's not the problem that we're facing the problem that we're facing is that we have everything is privatized um and so if there if there is like a nazi show on like a vastly reactionary station in a field of other reactionary stations um and some people are so outraged by what the person says that they want to boycott or pressure the advertisers of that show drop the guy or to temper like what he's writing what he's saying or pressure him to fire the racists who are writing for him um that's not exactly like canceling or like taking away his free speech it's trying to put pressure on on like a capitalist institution in a way that's essentially capitalist so ultimately free market baby these stations new york times Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, they're doing things that are in the interest of their of profit. They're, this isn't a liberal, it's not right. ideological. That's right. That's exactly right. We can really only start to figure out what free speech really looks like or should look like, I think, once we get rid of the value form yeah, and the wage let's system. Let's do it. Let's do it. Free I speech after the value form. I hate to be like, communism form. makes everything better, but <laughs> you know what? I feel like in I, most cases it, it does. And I, I think that, like, 
if if there was a final take I had on this is like people are I think they're trying to confuse you. I think they're trying to do Mott's and Bailey's. They're trying to throw all these things at the wall simply because they're upset that because of the way social media is, they're finally being critiqued in a loud way. They're always talking about the mob, right? Well, they were people were just upset, I'm sure, you know, 40 years ago about the Brett Stevens of the world and their shitty views, but they didn't have an ability to yell at them, and now they do. So, like, ultimately take it all with a grain of salt, and uh, maybe next time this comes up, we shouldn't even cover it. We should uh, just move on to like more important issues. But because, just one quick, yeah. one quick thing: they did like they would go to when these people publicly s- spoke and heckle them, or you well, know, true, throw yeah. shit at them, or what? Like this, it's not all this shit about cancel culture. They argue like the people from the the letter. They argue that this is like a new phenomena. That's McCarthyism coming back. All this nonsense. This is just the same anti-PC bullshit that's been going around since the 80s and the 90s and then they you know they had some term for it in the 60s I'm sure this is not new it's not specific it is just the same people who have a platform complaining about the scrutiny that they have on that platform it is the famous um, canonical film PCU with Jeremy Piven just rebooted. We're in like the seventh or eighth uh, sequel in that genre. It's turning into a Fast and Furious sort of thing. Indeed. Uh, one story that came across my desk this week that I found somewhat vexing was the drop in fertility worldwide that is happening. Um, and it has been happening since the 1960s. And it is predicted to accelerate uh, rapidly in the coming years for some reason. Um, So many people who are so proud of their pullout game, it's about to be uh, Mm -hmm. useless. And I was looking in here, because, like, I don't expect the liberal media to be totally on point in terms of economics, right? But uh, I looked at the the explanations that they offered, right? Mm. This is a story of the BBC. And they said... Public broadcasting. (laughs) Indeed. They said it is being driven by more women um, attaining greater levels of education and career, as well as a greater to access to contraception, leading women to choose to have fewer children. Uh, and now they say, don't, don't worry, um, we don't want to roll back these things, but it's just uh, something to consider, as if uh, the more education and access to contraception women obtain the fewer children they will have until one day we're all just going to be like philosopher queens and we will have no children (laughs) now i do not find this to be a totally convincing explanation i think there's 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 certainly something to it because if you look at fertility rates historically and around the world it when you get to a certain point of we could just call it generally freedom and uh, prosperity i suppose it, it is true that kind of seemingly organically, fertility rates start to drop. Sure, but they don't even mention the role played by austerity and the neoliberal turn. Oh, that's true. Like the idea that people are having fewer kids purely because of, you know, feminism or whatever, and not because it is harder and harder to afford, say, childcare, housing, having an extra room in your house for someone who doesn't pay rent is very expensive. Um, 
it seems like kind of a no brainer to me that uh, the increase in austerity is also playing a role as well as, you know, the, the accelerating crises that we are in. Yeah. My friends who have kids are at wins, wits end right now, uh, as I'm sure many listeners are too, trying to plan for their lives uh, in the fall. Because schooling for children is a lot of things, but one of the big things it is for parents is daycare for their children, which they need in order to go to work. So, like, without having a universal childcare policy in the United States, and with the COVID crisis making it so that schools probably can't open, parents are going nuts. And this mm-hmm. is just one of the things that you know they're dealing with in a country that's just stripped bare of any sort of social provision for social reproduction. Yeah, and and I am something of a millennialologist, right? I've done a lot of research on this, in addition to the. Uh, research I do in my life just by being a millennial. And in lots and lots of polls, millennials say that they want to have kids, they want to have a family, but they don't know how they're going to be able to afford it. So that's something that should maybe factor in. Also, the problems that this is going to cause uh, seem extremely tied to capitalism, right? Because we're going to have an aging population and there's not going to be enough of a tax base of people who are currently working in order to take care of all of them, um, which seems like if we had a society built around, um, first of all, production for use value, right? A drop in population wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. No, it would actually be good in terms of preserving our resources, yada, yada. Um, also, it's weird because I spent, like we spent our childhoods hearing about how overpopulation was going to be a huge problem. Like they showed us a movie called The People Bomb when I was in biology class about, you know, all these people in the third world are having all these kids and it's going to create a crisis. You know, never mind the fact that uh, the amount of carbon the average person in the developing world takes up throughout their lifetime is nothing compared to the amount of carbon someone in the developed world uses. Yeah, they've been going on that like depopulation shit since the Rockefellers in the 19th. And and now they're like, oh, wait, fewer people is also a problem. And countries are going to actually have to compete for immigrants from the places that people are that still have young populations. Wait, wait, hold on. So if too many people is a problem and not enough people is a problem, are you saying that maybe there's a third thing, which is that capitalism is the problem? We are the virus. We are the virus. Try and keep up. Our, our social system is the virus. Nature is healing itself. But like it talks about how uh, we're going to need to like redistribute the people around the world. Oh. And it has this like kind of lib take at the end where it says global recognition of the challenges around racism are going to be all the more critical if there are large numbers of people of African descent in many countries, oh. which is like kind of a weird note to leave it on. Uh But it seems like, I mean, obviously racism is a problem and it's going to continue to be a problem, but there are like structural factors to consider. It it also seems like a bit of a contradiction in terms of my understanding of how this stuff works. Like we've seen uh, countries in Europe that are in crisis, right? They get a huge Nazi problem. There's an increasing amount of nativism talking about needing to restrict immigration as a way to protect the welfare state. And um Maybe this shows that that is a complete hogwash, right? If the way to actually improve the economy is to have more immigrants. Now, I don't know. What do you think, Andy? You look like you got some thoughts. I mean, 
the when we talk about fertility, it sounds like some natural thing, like like the soil is being poisoned or Ooh. something like that. People have children based on for material reasons. Like it used to be you had like a ton of children because you needed people to work for you because people like like kids worked at a farm when they turned eight or something right. or they could and, go down to the workhouse and work. And child mortality yeah. was like 50% of your kids wouldn't make it to 18. That too. Like yeah. this, and it's still the case in a lot of the world where there are high birth rates. Um, and it's so it's good that, uh, you know, people like a lot of the United States just has one to two kids or 2.5 kids or whatever. That's if that's what they want, that's a good number. But also if they can't afford to have kids at all, that's a problem too. That's, that's no longer a choice. So the goal shouldn't be like, do we have initiatives for more or less kids? It should be, how about people just decide how many kids they want and they should be able to make that choice and live comfortably. It's almost like that should be decoupled from economic pressures. In In a country that talks so much about freedom, just that elementary freedom of like deciding what sort of family you want, what your family looks like, um, you know, the orientation of your family, all that freedom gets very, very much uh, circumscribed and complicated by, uh, yeah, by capitalist social relations and a lack of a good uh, welfare state even. Indeed. So uh, real quick before we close out, uh, I watched something kind of funny on Hulu last night. I was going through looking for stuff to watch. And was it Castle Rock? <laughs> I I've been watching wish. Castle Rock. It's pretty good, actually. Well, I probably should have watched it's that. It's like but... American Horror Story, but like it's all Stephen King shit. I don't know. It's pretty good. Anyways, go on. Well, the interview that George Stephanopoulos did with oh, Mary Trump. That little manlet. Um, it was some lib shit, but it really sucked me in. Yeah. And I have a few notes on this. Okay. So first of all. Wait. So to to give context. Mary Trump's like the niece of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? And she wrote a She's also a clinical all. psychologist. Oh, okay. She wrote a book called uh, like Too Much and Not Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And so she did an interview uh, about it with George Stephanopoulos. First off, this is probably a dumb thing to say, but she really looks like him. Like the family resemblance is striking. And... um. I don't know why Donald Trump would put on a wig, uh, go on TV and call himself a sociopath. I don't know what purpose that would serve him, but I was a bit high when I watched it and I could not get the thought out of my head. It was very distracting. Um, (laughs) Moving on. um, George asked her like a pretty valid question when he was like, what does this reveal? What does your book reveal that we didn't know before? Right. Cause she's like, I just had to do it. I had to give people all the information that they need to make a decision about this man and about what kind of country we want to be. Mm, okay. Um, and the answer is nothing. Like, obviously this tells us nothing new. Like, Oh no, Trump is a narcissist. Really? He's unfit to lead the country. And in fact, he's dangerous. Fucking color me surprised. Right. Um, he, he, she said he, um, he went to the movies instead of visiting his dying brother in the hospital. It's probably the most damning thing she said about him, but that is not out of character no, for the Trump know. we know. Um, he had a guy named Joe Shapiro take his SATs for him. 
Shocking. The the liberals on Twitter were losing. The, that's just like Trump. I can imagine him doing it because, of course, for them, the most important thing is the meritocracy. So somebody cheating on their SATs for them is like an impeachable offense. Yeah. Even 50, 60 years later. Yeah. And, and George Stephanopoulos asked like five follow-up questions about the <laughs> SAT story. So clearly... Upper you're, middle class libs losing clearly their Clearly your assessment over. is right. He knows his audience. Um, she loves the New York Times reporter who looked into her family's finances right like the happiest moment in this interview for her is when she talks about bringing all the tax documents to the reporters like they're really gonna get them this time and she was like really surprised that nobody cared which um i wasn't <laughs> like yeah. i i barely even knew about this story i'm like yeah he's a piece of shit what do you want he's fucking crook i can't believe i'm sorry to, to interrupt but i can't believe three and a half years into his presidency that people sincerely think they're going to find a gotcha on this guy that's going to somehow like, you know, circumvent or, or like basically like find a way to get rid of Trump that isn't an actual election. Like yeah, people no. have been trying this over and over again. With but um, shit. Or, or that's going to convince the people who vote for him to oh, vote yeah. against right, him. Like the 40 percent of the psychos in this country who love Donald Trump. I mean, they're not changing their fucking I, minds. I guess I guess you could say like his uh any whiff of economic populism he once had is totally gone. But sure. I don't know how much of a factor that actually was at this point because he did not lose supporters for the Republican tax heist or yeah. any of this shit. But like the place where it really crossed over from like harmless lib shit for me, like, ooh, orange man bad. Like, fine, I agree. The orange man yeah. is very bad. Legitimately bad. Um, it's when she paints his policies, right? She mentions his cruel policies, like the Muslim ban, like family separation. Um, she describes them as pathology. She describes them as the result of his sociopathic pathology. She uses the language of psychology. She talks about his enablers that he's Ooh. surrounded with, as opposed to the logical outcome of processes that have been going on for decades right. in this country. Wow, she really took a psychoanalysis to his policies. That's wild. Yeah. He, I mean, we, we know by now that Trump is like well within the mainstream when it comes to his policies. You know, his ideology is kind of all over the place when he talks about what he wants and what he's going to do. But it's basically bog standard Republican shit, the right wing of neoliberalism. Yeah, and, you know, these things have been going on. It's certainly not like a character trait. Democrats and Republicans <laughs> right. alike, as we have thoroughly covered on our episodes with Daniel Denver and others. So uh, the main thing that I want, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this show, you're probably not a lib. But the main thing I want to caution people against is viewing these in an individualized, pathological way. Both things can be true, right. right? Trump is a narcissistic sociopath, and he's carrying out, he's the, he's the culmination, he's the result. He's the, the cancer, the herpes of neoliberalism, if you will. And merely voting in another neoliberal piece of shit like Joe Biden is not going to solve these underlying problems. Sure isn't. I think culmination is the best way to put it, because it seems like the election of Trump and his presidency has sort of been like a serious uh, uh, inflection point, you know, because it seems like things can't get more crass. Things can't get more, more austere. Uh, things cannot be more vulgar and brutal. 
than the Donald Trump presidency. And again, the idea that we're going to somehow take the social forces that helped to create Trump, we're going to like you know, shut the barn door, you know, uh, after after they've left. It's it's absurd. And, and yeah, Biden's not going to. Biden's not going to be the solution to this. So the struggle will continue. You know, the struggle's different and weird and funny under Trump because he's such a fucking jerk off. But like even when Biden presumably is going to be elected in uh, a few months from now, it doesn't really change much, especially since more than ever, we're all really in the same boat right now when it comes to economic, political, and social crises, triple crises. Yeah, one really cool thing about one of the many cool things about the the uprising uh, that's happened over the last few months is that no one gives a shit about Trump or it Biden. Seems like that no way. one, yeah. No one's. I mean, sometimes you get some person saying vote, but they just seem like a wingnut, like because <laughs> like those vote, are the wingnuts. Like vote for what? You know, <laughs> like the the Biden's big thing this last week has been has been like touting that uh, Chris Wallace showed that no, actually, I am not going to fund the police. Like that was his big victory over Trump is that no, actually, I am against the movement, just like Trump is. I, when I was going to be real tough on China, too. I was just the other day I was looking at the front page of The New York Times. I was looking at the op ed section and it, it was like four different articles, like right next to each other there on the, on the front page. They're talking about like Biden's plan for the environment's a game changer mm-hmm. and like. Uh, returning stability back to the country and like what a Biden foreign policy will look like and bringing back the stature of the United States. And that seemed way more wingnut than anything I had seen in forever. This idea that somehow like, like these people literally are waiting. Yeah. They're, they're literally waiting for like uh, the Messiah to come down and, and, and save themselves. Well, speaking of Messiahs, uh, I think there was a brief moment in time with the Bernie Sanders campaign, where the priorities of the socialist left, there was a case to be made that they aligned with what was going on in the electoral sphere. And that's that's done now. That's way done. What's going on that's in the gonzo. electoral sphere, you know, there's some exciting local races, whatever, whatever. What's going on the in the electoral sphere on a national level is so many layers removed from what's happening in the streets and what needs to happen. And this goes back to some stuff I was talking about on the panel as well. Like, what do you do when the normal avenues of change, the normal levers you can pull are basically closed off, right? The Democrats basically told the left to go fuck itself. They told the working people of America to go fuck themselves. What's going to happen now? Are people just going to lie down and die? No, I don't fucking think so. I think people are going to stand up and fight as they have been already. And, you know, it's a scary-ass time, but also there's great potential. There's great potential for activity. There's great potential for change. Going back to the housing stuff where we started this with Nate, right? You already have a multiracial, multi-generational street movement that exists right now. It was formed around the murder of George Floyd, and it's called itself Black Lives Matter. And that will continue, of course, right? But over the last couple of months, the working class of this country, through their own self-activity, have organized in a way that we haven't seen in generations. And it's very hard to be hard for me to believe when basically the legitimacy of the state is gone at this point, that those social forces are just going to like, I don't know, bleed away and and that there's not going to be some sort of collective action, especially as we saw with 23 million people potentially being evicted very soon. Well, 
the million dollar question is how do you keep this energy going so it doesn't just dissipate until the next horrible thing happens I've, and i think I, I let me just say real fast that uh i've been thinking about this a lot and one of the beautiful things that you saw during the height of the uprising was that activists you know people like us leftists in a sense kind of like faded away and it was a mass movement it was mass mm-hmm. a mass or uh self-organization in the streets and like that's the sort of energy that we need moving forward it can't just be small councils small cadres going out there and trying to push things forward i think we're getting to the point where things aren't going to need to push they might kind of be need to you know moved in one direction or another but i i yeah well i think the task of the organized left in this moment is to ask ourselves how we can possibly gain the legitimacy that we would need to not only participate in a meaningful way, but to lead, um, provide uh, coherence, political coherence and coherent analysis in a give and take way where we learn from people and they learn from, you know, the left because we're not there yet. What do we need to do to have that legitimacy? What do we need to do to provide an organizational structure? And I don't have the answer, but I'm really, really committed to figuring it out along with everybody else. And and I think that as a final point, we have to figure it out. I mean, we're in the triple crisis. The point is, is that there's no way out but through. Uh, Nobody's going to do this for us. Bernie Sanders, certainly not Biden, is not going to come down and uh, solve things for us. So it's do or, t- do or die times, folks. We, uh, we just got to go for it and uh, just work our hardest to, to push things in the right direction. And uh, I don't know. Eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize. Full communism. That's it. Full communism. 2020. All right, guys. When a bomb goes off in a city street, when a man 